You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Well, good morning and Happy New Year. Uh, how is everyone's resolutions doing? Good, okay. Got some thumbs up. Um, well, I'm glad to see you all here this morning. At least you can start the year. You haven't missed church yet. You're perfect on church attendance this year. But we're going to be in a few places this morning. Um, so if you have your physical Bibles with you, um, the first text that we are going to be in this morning is 1 John 2, 15 through 17. And then we'll move on to Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And then finally, we will close uh, with Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. And those texts will be behind me on the screen. Um, We have a lot to cover here this morning, so I'm going to move rather quickly. uh, But I know you guys are ready for it, okay? All right. So, in 1941, nearly 280 million people lived in Europe, uh, which at the time uh, was more than half of the total, or sorry, it lived in Europe, at the time was more than half of the entire European population. They were controlled by Nazi Germany or their allies. Germany had invaded and conquered territory from France to Norway to much of northern Africa. After Germany had quickly and effectively invaded France, Hitler soon began to have plans drawn up for an invasion of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union, whose people uh, and Hitler saw as racially inferior, uh, was truly a key and strategic objective in his and Nazi Germany's plan of a complete and total Germanization of the greater part of the continent. He's quoted as saying, we have only to kick in the door and the whole rotten edifice will come tumbling down. Operation Barbarossa began on Sunday, June 22, 1941. A 1,800-mile front totaling over three and a half million troops was deployed, making up 80% of the entire German army, the largest invasion force in the history of warfare to that point. 148 divisions, 3,400 tanks, and 2,700 aircraft began storming into the Soviet Union. The Germany, if you're familiar with World War II, especially those few first years, Germany had had success upon success up to this point, and they fully expected to see the Nazi flag raised in Moscow very soon. But the Soviet Union was no France. As Operation Barbarossa continued, it soon became obvious that Germany had completely underestimated their enemy and was completely unprepared for a war in the East. It became Germany's first defeat on land in the war. Hitler's underestimation of the Soviet Union resulted from bad intelligence that was magnified by a strong cultural bias. More simply put, he did not know his enemy. And you see this play out over and over again on the battlefield. Japan did the same thing when it launched an attack on America at Pearl Harbor a few short months after this. Shortly after 9-11, when U.S. troops were deployed to the Middle East, it soon became clear that they were not only fighting against a people, but an ideology, which is much more difficult to rage war upon. Sun Tzu, the author of The Art of War, summarizes this perfectly. Know thy enemy and know yourself. In a hundred battles, you will never be defeated. And a few weeks ago, when Pastor Mike called me and asked if I'd like to teach this morning, I responded back, firstly, yeah, I would love to. That'd be great. Uh, And then secondly, I asked, well, are we continually through uh, the Gospel of John? Is there a certain text or topic that you would like me to teach on this morning? Uh, And he responded, well, you know, the year just came to an end. What, What is something that God did in your life? What is something that God spoke to you? Or is there anything that God revealed to you this past year that you would like to teach upon? And after some prayer, uh, I knew exactly what it was that I wanted to teach on this morning. Uh, This past year, 
2023, as may be the case for many of you here this morning, was a particularly difficult one for my family and I. We said goodbye uh, to our team and life overseas and moved back to a place that uh, where we are from uh, was home but had changed quite a bit and involved a lot of transition, a new job, a sweet and beautiful new baby, and two more moves were blessings from the Lord but came during a season that felt like a war. Many days I felt peaceless. It felt unattainable like some foreign or distant concept. And I found myself seeking for this eluding peace in all of the wrong places. And not only that, I felt an immense darkness that seemed to cloud my mind. Intrusive and unwanted thoughts struck my mind like flaming darts. Shame and guilt followed, and then I started believing lies about myself. Truth in Scripture did not seem applicable to me anymore. Uh, Verses that I had read my whole entire life, I now read them with myself outside of them. I felt condemned, unforgivable, unloved, and I thought if anyone truly knew me, there is no way anybody would love me. And amid this time, as I mentioned, I I sought for this eluding peace in all of the wrong places, in the world and in my flesh. And I honestly felt crazy at times. How could I be a pastor and feel like this? Or even better yet, how could I be a Christian and feel or think like this? And it wasn't until I recognized the war I found myself in and the enemies that raged against and within me to sabotage this peace and fill my mind with lies that these things became a little bit clear. I found myself fighting against enemies I had no business battling against by my own strength. I felt unarmed and unprepared. The Christian life is war. War imagery is used continually throughout the Bible. As John Mark Comer says in his incredibly helpful book, Live No Lies, our generation has a low comfort level with military metaphors and faith. We prefer to think of following Jesus as a journey or lifestyle rather than a war. But our spiritual ancestors didn't share our reticence with war imagery. They were far more joy at naming the reality of spiritual conflict than we are today. For centuries, teachers of the way of Jesus used a paradigm that's been lost in the modern era that of the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. They saw the three enemies of the soul as alien invaders from hell and a kind of counter-trinity to God himself. In the Book of Common Prayer, the 16th century English liturgical prayer book has a prayer that reads, From all the deceits of the world, the flesh, and the devil, good Lord, deliver us. The three are, as Comer puts it, the counter-trinity. Wage war on the believer every day, and we must recognize that we are in a war, see what enemies we are up against, understand their tactics, and see how victory can be won. We must not underestimate. These enemies. We must, as J.C. Ryle puts it, carry arms and go to war. All by have nature a heart full of pride, unbelief, sloth, worldliness, and sin. All are living in a world beset with snares, traps, and pitfalls for the soul. All have them near a busy, restless, malicious devil. So this morning, as I was preparing for this, I, uh, in all In all truth, I probably could spend a whole entire Sunday talking about each of these enemies a little bit more in depth. So what I've tried to do uh, is prayerfully give us a clear 30,000-foot view of each of these enemies that rage war upon our soul and some practical spiritual disciplines that we can have in our arsenal to fight against them. Okay, so didn't know if you're going to begin the new year talking about the devil, but here we go. Are you ready? All right. But first, enemy number one. So if you have a, already turned to it, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, the first enemy we find ourselves fighting against is the world. But before we define this enemy further, we need to see the difference between how the Greek word used for, the, for world in Scripture, which is uh, cosmos, and, and, and the different ways that it's used. Uh, in the same way one English word can have multiple meanings, say the word light, we see this word cosmos used differently throughout the Bible. For example, light, it can either mean uh, the natural agent that stimulates sight, as in turn on the light, please, to ignite something, causing it to start burning. Hand me that match so I can light this fire. 
or of low weight, not heavy. That bag was surprisingly light. We see in Romans 1, 20 through 21, that God, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, cosmos, in the things that have been made. And the word for world that Paul uses here is clearly not of an enemy, but of a theater where God displays his power and creative things in all that he has created. Again, we see another definition in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever shall believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In this famous summary of the gospel, John uses the same word, cosmos, not as a reference to the physical world or as an enemy to be feared against or fight against, but as Comer states, to the mass of humans who populate our planet and as part of his creation, draw the loving eye of the creator's compassion. So let's take a look at some texts that use this word cosmos in reference to something to fight against, an enemy to rage war upon. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. John 15, 18 through 20. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Matthew 16, 26. And perhaps the best definition is found in our text this morning in John's three-folded definition of the word world found in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, which reads, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. This is the world's anti-trinity, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So first, the lust of the flesh. This is clearly speaking of sexual temptation. The same thing Jesus had in mind in Matthew 5, 28 through 29, when he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. It is love deformed, contrary to how God created it and intended it to be. But it also includes more than just sexual desire. The ESV translates this verse as the desires of the flesh. So it encompasses every misaligned sinful desire for drink, food, sex, power, control, and so on. Then secondly, the lust of the eyes. This can be further defined as, as greed, covetousness, which is the chief enemy of contentment. Want, desire, the pursuit of more, and the restlessness of soul that follows. And this is incredibly prevalent in our time and culture today. Uh, Here's some quick uh, and sobering statistics for you. There are 300,000 items in the average American home. The average size of the American home has nearly tripled in size in the past 50 years. The United States has upwards of 50,000 storage facilities, more than five times the number of Starbucks which I thought there were like 17 million Starbuckses, but apparently there's only 10,000. 25% of people with two-car garages don't have room to park cars inside them. Three point, his laughter, huh? There's <laughs> a spring cleaning coming early this year. 3.1% of the world's children live in America, but they own 40% of the toys consumed globally. The average American throws away 65 pounds of clothing per year. British research found that an average 10-year-old owns 238 toys but plays with just 12 daily. Over the course of our lifetime, we will spend a total of 3,680 hours or 153 days searching for misplaced items. I have already exceeded that, looking for my wife's phone 
alone. I think I'm at like 17,000 hours already. <laughs> Love you, babe. Americans spend $1.2 trillion annually on non-essential goods. I believe these are striking. It's a striking portrayal of what John was talking about here in his text. And then lastly, the pride of life, our natural bent to go our own way. This could be more accurately defined as an arrogant assumption. The chronicler in 2 Chronicles 26, 16 through 21, attributes Uzziah's downfall to his pride. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. When Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead, so they carried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. We see in Paul, uh, we see Paul warn Timothy in his qualifications for overseers that he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit, pride, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And quick side note before we continue on, one thing to note is that human desire is a part of God's creation and is and of itself not inherently evil. But desires become twisted and sinful when not directed by and towards God. And what's striking and interesting about these three anti-trinities is that they are the same temptations Satan tried on Christ in the wilderness. And we'll cover that uh, a little bit more in depth later on. I love Dallas Willard's definition of the world, and I think it is a great summarization of all we just talked about. He defines the world as our cultural and social practices that are under the control of Satan and thus opposed to God. So I want to ask us, all of us here this morning, myself included, what am I seeking to gain in this world that may be sabotaging my peace? Is there something misleading your priorities, skewing your perspective? Which of these three, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, do I seem to be struggling with the most today? Is it all three of them? Is it two of them? Be honest with yourself. Be honest with the Lord. So how can we fight against it? That brings us to our first spiritual practice or spiritual discipline, silence and solitude. And as we enter into a new year, in my opinion, there's no better time to begin trying new things. So if you have not or have some sort of rhythm in your life or spiritual practices that you have adopted, I pray that maybe as you leave here today, you take a few of these, add them to your arsenal and go about your year. These disciplines or practices truly are weapons of spiritual warfare at our disposal to dispel and disarm the world, the flesh, and the devil. So our first practice of choice, as I said, is silence and solitude. Oswald Chambers once said, Solitude with God repairs the damage done by the fret and noise and the clamor of this world. And I love this from Thomas Merton who says, There should be at least a room or some corner where no one will find you and disturb you or notice you. You should be able to untether yourself from the world and set yourself free, loosing all the fine strings and strands of tension that bind you by sight, by sound, by thought, to the presence of other men. Once you have found such a place, be content with it, and do not be disturbed if a good reason takes you out of it. Love it and return to it as soon as you can, and do not be too quick to change it for another. And we see Jesus continually seek out silence and solitude continuing, continually throughout his earthly life and ministry. He saw the world as under the control of the devil. He said, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He recognized that the, the rule that the world was under but did not separate from it completely. He would go off in solitude and he would come back. And he would repeat, and he would repeat, and he would repeat. We see them do this in his, before his encounter with Satan in the wilderness. Again, we'll get to that later. We see him go to a mountain to pray all night before making a decision, as in pointing the, appointing the 12 disciples in Luke 6. He encouraged his disciples to rest and retreat to a place of solitude so that they could recharge after they had been sent out in ministry and had returned. 
In Matthew 14, we see Jesus hearing of the recent news of the death of his cousin, John the Baptist. And it says he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. He chose solitude in a time of grief and in a time of immense distress as we see him sweat drops of blood shortly before his awaited crucifixion. If the Son of Man removed himself to seek silence and solitude, how much more should we? One more quote by Willard on solitude. I love this. He says, Solitude well practiced will break the power of busyness, haste, isolation, and loneliness. You will see the world is not upon your shoulders after all. You will find yourself and God will find you in new ways. Silence also brings Sabbath to you. It completes solitude, for without it, you cannot be alone. Far from being a mere absence, silence allows the reality of God to stand in the midst of your life. This is what silence and solitude can do for the Christian. Okay, how we doing? On the enemy number two. Ready? All right, Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three. The flesh. Verse 1 begins, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, enemy number one, following the prince of the power of the air, enemy number three, the spirit is now, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, enemy number two carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We see the counter-trinity or anti-trinity once again in Paul's letter here to the Ephesians. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And just like the Greek word for world, cosmos, just like that can have many different meanings, the word here, the Greek word used for flesh can have similar different meanings as well. We see it uh, used to mean the physical body, as in the two will become one flesh, or to refer to someone's ethnicity, as Paul warns us to put no confidence in the flesh. But the definition and use of this word, sarks, that we are most interested in this morning, is, and which is found here in Ephesians 2, and likewise in Romans 7:5, as Paul writes, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. It is the sinful nature or appetite that dwells within each and every single one of us. There's a famous story Augustine of Hippo uh, writes about in his uh, book Confessions, in which he as a youth was walking by a neighboring orchard one day, and he decided to jump the orchard uh, into the orchard, and he just stole a bunch of pears. Uh, And he recounts that he was not hungry, nor did he have a craving for pears, but he just wanted to steal just because he wanted to steal. He did it for the the, the thrill of the theft. It was sinful. It was a fleshly desire. And he wrote this to drive home the truth that we read from the pen of Paul in Ephesians 2 and Romans 7, 8. Spurgeon helps us see this more clearly in his commentary on Romans 7, 5, as he writes, Sin is the transgression of the law. Therefore, out of the law, by reason of our corruption, springs sin. And in our past lives, we did indeed find sin to be very fruitful. It grew fast in our members, and it brought forth much fruit unto death. Deep within us is a drive to do evil for evil's sake. And for certain, as we come to faith in Christ, the next verse following Romans 7, 5 comes true for everyone who is in Christ. For we are released from the law, having died to which what held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And we can confidently and certainly proclaim the truths of 2 Corinthians five seventeen that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old has gone and the new is here but this flesh our fallen nature has not been completely eradicated this side of glory and we enter into a lifelong struggle against these passions that wage war within us and i don't know about you but i can so relate to what paul talks about a few verses down in romans 7 He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. 
for I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This struggle is a a war for us all and an assault on our peace. And in the next chapter in Romans 8, 1 through 18, uh, Paul dives more into this war that rages on between the flesh and the spirit. And just a quick note as well, just as we mentioned earlier, um, human desire in and of itself is not an inherently evil thing. It's a gift from God. And in the same way, that goes for the physical pleasures of this world. Our God is a gracious, creative, joy-giving Father who has blessed us with many good things to enjoy. Shortly after uh, we moved back, I don't know if you know this about me, but I love food. Uh, So shortly, anybody else a foodie? All right. Uh, shortly after we moved back from the States, we had a dinner with our family, and I swear everything was wrapped in bacon, and it was awesome. And I ate too much, and I have a sweet tooth, and I just gorged myself on food. But when I go beyond eating for necessity or just praising God for different flavors and taste buds and begin to believe that this food can not only satisfy my stomach but can satisfy my soul, I fall right into the temptation of lusting after the flesh, loving the pleasure more than the gift. And I'm guilty of that over and over and over again. And I love how Eugene Peterson defines the flesh. He defines it as the corruption that sin has introduced into our very appetites and instincts. We all have an animalistic drive for self-gratification. And these desires, if we are honest with ourselves, are in each and every single one of us. We must be aware of the inner tug of war between the flesh and the spirit within each of us. Is your flesh stronger and pulling heavier? Are you letting it? Do you feel the spirit at work within you? These are questions that each of us, including myself, must ask ourselves over and over and over again. And Dostoevsky writes in the Brothers Karmazov, God and the devil are fighting there, and the battlefield is the heart of man. I love that. God and the devil are fighting there, and the battlefield is the heart of man. So, how can we fight against this enemy? That brings us to our next spiritual practice or discipline, confession. Confession is truly a balm for the sinful soul. James 5.16 instructs us to confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Confession is an ongoing practice throughout the life of a believer. It is not a one and done thing. The life of a Christian should be marked uh, by continual, uh, a continual pursuit of holiness, godliness, and righteousness. But we will fall. Uh, And as this morning has been centered around these three enemies that we face, I love this convicting quote from Thomas Brooks. He says, don't excuse yourself by accusing Satan. Don't excuse yourself by accusing Satan. More simply put, don't blame anything else for your sin. The world is outside. The devil is an adversary who is a liar. But our flesh is our flesh, and we are responsible for it. As John writes in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love this quote from Frederick Buchner. He says, this is so good, to confess your sins to God is not to tell God anything that he doesn't already know. Until you confess them, however, they are the abyss between you. When you confess them, they become the bridge. I've shared this story uh, once before, so I apologize if you've heard it. But to me, it really helps me understand, uh, I believe it's a great illustration between sin and confession. Um, My family and I, before we moved back to Texas, we were living overseas in London. Um, And as many people do when they move overseas, they experience a kind of uh, culture shock. 
Uh, and one of the things that was shocking to us was just how old these buildings were. Um, our flat wasn't a particularly older building, but it lacked a lot of uh, insulation and airflow. Um, and winters can get pretty brutal there. Summers are really, can get really hot. Um, and if you didn't know this as well about British summers, the sun rises at about 4.30 in the morning and goes in and sets at about 10.30 p.m. So we wanted to be sane and okay the next day and our kids to sleep past 4.30. Uh, so our oldest son, Micah, uh, and our daughter, Millie, they slept in the same room together. Um, and our son, Micah, at that point, had been sick for a really long time. Uh, continually sick. I mean, there was not a break, it seemed like, for months. Uh, And probably the most persistent, uh, bothersome thing was his cough. It was a nasty cough, Uh, and he could not get rid of it. So much to the point that we overheard him one day playing with his Avengers in his room, and they were battling against a fictional bad guy named Mr. Cough. (laughs) That's how bad this was in his life at the time. And we, were, we didn't know what to do. I mean, we're in a new country. We're trying to learn all these things, try to how to get to the hospital and so on. Um, and it wasn't until one day, so in their room where they slept, again, because the sun rose so early, we had these massive blackout curtains. Uh, we had the blinds down and blackout curtains. Uh, and I, I went in there and it's just like, you know, I'm just going to let some fresh air in here. So I peeled back those blackout curtains, lifted up the blind, and I have a picture. This is not from our house. We're a little bit more clean, clean than this. Uh, but peeled up those blinds, and there was black mold everywhere, all throughout the window, on the window seal, on the window pane itself, on the, um, on the bottom, on the base of the window. I mean, it was everywhere. And I remember Tori and I just both being like, like we were just taken aback by this. Um, so we did as any parent would do. We got some bleach, we sprayed the windows down, and we cleaned it, and lo and behold, he got better. His cough slowly went away. And I I just felt like that was such a great illustration of what confession does for the Christian in your life, that sin is black and moldy, and it will spread if we do not bring it to light, and it'll make us sick. And it wasn't until we shone light on that black mold, saw what it was, brought it to light, that we were able to treat it. And another thing, uh, that one time cleaning it didn't eradicate it. From that point on, I kid you not, every single day, we would open up those blinds again, and there'd be little spots of black mold, just little ones. So we kept a towel and cleaner in there by their room, and every morning we'd open up those blackout curtains, lift up the blinds, clean that mold off, and then do it again the next day. Confession is good for the soul. It is cleansing. May we be people who practice this continually in our lives. Okay, lastly, ready to talk about the devil? All right, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. What did the Bible and Jesus say about the devil, this last enemy that we face? So this is one that we are probably all very familiar with to some extent. Uh, But again, before we define this enemy further, I want to make a few observations. When it comes to the spiritual realm, uh, or more specifically Satan and the demonic, uh, I believe that the pendulum can swing in one of two ways. It can swing to the left where we can be completely indifferent to the spiritual world and the war around us. The idea of an enemy hell-bent on destruction sounds unbelievable or like a myth, a talking snake, red tights, and a pitchfork. This would be a win in the eyes of the enemy. C.S. Lewis touches on this idea further in his famous satirical book, The Screwtape Letters. Um, it book, this book portrays a, a typical human life seen from the enemy's viewpoint. It's, it's, it's fascinating. It's so interesting. So Screwtape is a mentor demon, and he's an uncle to Wormwood. Um, and he's instructing this young and inexperienced tempter how to tempt, mislead, and destroy their human subject. That would be you and I. And in one of his letters to his nephew, Screwtape writes, I love this, I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient, that would be you and I, in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion or existence 
of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. In a time and culture filled with scary movies centered around the demonic and the devil, we can see how us now, 80 years removed from the publication of Lewis's book, can fall into this lie so easy. I think of the great uh, cinematographer, cin- cinematic, what, what, what am I looking for? Cinematic movie, The Emperor's New Groove. And Kronk, in that movie, I don't know if you've seen it, uh, has this dilemma where he is trying to decide whether he should kill Cusco or let Cusco live. And as he's deciding this, he's in this mental turmoil, and he's just thinking, out of nowhere, an angel pops up on this shoulder, and a little devil pops up on this shoulder. And they're just talking back and forth, and he's listening to both. They're poking fun at each other. And I just thought that that is such a, like, that is what C.S. Lewis is talking about here. We have minimized this as something to laugh about, and the reality of it has gone out the window because we do this. And the other end of the pendulum can be just as dangerous. Hyper-fear or infatuation with the spiritual realm is a side that we don't want to find ourselves on either. This could be that, hey, there's a demon behind every bush approach. Sometimes you get a flat tire because you got a flat tire. Plain and simple. And you may have gotten into a fight with your significant other on the way to church and thought, oh, this is the enemy. Or maybe in the midst of hurry and panic, you said something brash and harsh to your other other spouse that made them feel really hurt. Okay? Maybe you have got a stomach ache and you thought, oh, this could only be demonic, but you remember you just ate Taco Bell. It's, it, it, that is the demon behind every bush approach. So we don't want to fall on this side of the pendulum or swing to the other side. So how do we stop the pendulum from swinging? We must truly know this enemy, the devil. So let's take a look at how this enemy is defined in Scripture, the titles he has given And as we close, we'll take a look at two famous stories that expose his greatest weapons against us. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5.8. The word devil is used 35 times in Scripture. And this word can either be translated as either slanderer or accuser. It is truly his aim to defame. He seeks to distort your understanding of who you are in Christ. He lives up to this accuser title as he constantly seeks to lie to God about us. I don't know if you know this or not, but in Revelation 12, 10, it reads, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. He is actively accusing us before God as we speak. The title Satan is used 52 times in the Bible. And the Hebrew word word literally means the adversary or the one who opposes. Three times, Jesus calls him the prince of of this world. And to Jesus, this enemy is real and he is the most influential creature in the world. Other titles given to him in the Bible include the evil one, the tempter, the destroyer, the deceiver, the great dragon, the ancient serpent, ruler or prince of the power of the air and the god of this age. And some scholars argue the fact that he isn't given a specific name, especially by Jesus, is a shot that this rival isn't even worthy of a name. Others see it as a sign of just how dangerous he is. Be free to interpret that whichever way you like this morning. But the truth is that to Jesus, this adversary or enemy is real, not a mere myth. He is active and smart and dangerous. And he is not without a plan. He is armed with tools and tactics to destroy, accuse, and kill we see in 2 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11 that anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not 
unaware of his schemes. He has goals, he has plans, an agenda. But what is his primary weapon? So let's get back to Jesus in the wilderness and his encounter with this tempter in Matthew chapter 4 as we come to a close here soon. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. We see the devil armed with many different arrows in his quiver. He works in active opposition to the gospel. He can be the source of sickness. He plants sinful purposes and plans in the hearts of men and women. He tests and tries Christians. He exploits sinful decisions, and he sets snares and traps. His end goal truly is to spread death. Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But what is his biggest arrow, his most lethal weapon? He was and is a liar from the beginning. We see this back in the first temptation in the Garden of Eden. We see that the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one quick observation on that before we go on that may be missed is that the serpent or the devil is a created being. He is not an equal being with God. He is below powerful, but still a created being. And second, he was crafty and is crafty. He's smart and cunning. He's smooth. Notice what he says to Eve. Did God really say? It's not a direct temptation. He's getting her to question what God had said, to doubt the truth, and another lie follows. You will not certainly die. Blatant lie. But that initial question, that initial hook, did God really say, made that next lie almost irresistible. He is a really, really good liar, a master manipulative deceiver. And as Comer notes, the devil's lies aren't just random, untrue facts with no emotional value. His lies carry weight. He lies the same to us today. You don't need to be fully truthful on that application. You know, it's just one movie, you know, there's this one scene, but what harm could it do? You deserve to be happy, just make that one more purchase. And we are vulnerable to these small lies. And we see him tempt Jesus in the same way. Notice how he begins, back in Matthew 4, if you are the Son of God. It's a direct attack on the identity of Jesus. If you are who you say you are, then do this. Or do this. A lie is introduced and then the temptation follows. Do you see the flow of attack? A direct lie that then leads to tempting thoughts that flow into the flesh and world. This counter trinity truly does work in unison. It works together and it works effectively together too. Satan begins with a lie and then he tempts, or in the Greek, can be uh, translated as tested, but Jesus truly is the Son of God. Counter to what he was lying or trying to get Jesus to believe, he truly is the Son of God. And they go back and forth. Satan says, he quotes, comes at him with Psalm 91. Jesus says, okay, cool. I'll come right back at you with Isaiah chapter 7. And they go back and forth, back and forth, until Satan sees that his lies cannot penetrate, penetrate the truth, capital T. He departs and Jesus soon begins his earthly ministry. 
And it's striking to see the correlation between this account in Matthew 4 and the threefolded definition that we read about earlier in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. And I have this behind me here. The lust of the flesh, the devil tempts Jesus to turn stones into bread. The lust of the eyes, the devil tempts Jesus to receive all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And then lastly, the pride of life. The devil tempts Jesus to jump off of the temple, which probably was around 300 feet off the ground, and prove that the angels will rescue him, thus receiving glory and awing the crowds and maybe even garnering an enthusiastic following as a result. So how can we fight back? John 8, reads, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, get this, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We have an enemy who is described by Jesus himself as the father of lies. But what does Jesus say a few verses before this? If you back up to verse 31 there in John 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the what? The truth. And the truth will what? Set you free. There is truly only one way to know the truth, and that is by continually, continuing to believe and obey Jesus and know his word, know the truth. And notice, too, that Satan knew the word of God himself, too. But Jesus knew it better. His word, the word, was his defense, his primary defense against the testing of Satan. So it should be ours as well. As we come to a close, we're going to define our last spiritual practice, and that is truth in the word. If Satan, if lies are Satan's primary weapon that seeks to sabotage our peace and our souls, then what must we do to protect ourselves from them? What is the counter to lies? It's truth. It's truth. And what is truth and where is it found in it? And particularly in an age and culture where we are tempted to, uh, as we see so many do, define their own truth, is there such thing as an objective truth? Satan comes at us with false ideas and lies, and we must know the truth, reality, and trusting that it will truly set us free. Our mind is a battleground where this takes place. I have a picture of him here, but um, Evagrius Ponticus, and no, he's not a character from Harry Potter. He's a real person. He was a monk, a fourth century monk who was considered one of the most influential theologians of his time. He was a preacher and teacher in Constantinople uh, until a spiritual crisis led him to leave for Jerusalem and become a monk. Uh, And soon he left Jerusalem and he fled to the Egyptian desert to fight the devil. That's what he was going to go do. Evagrius had learned from the example of Jesus about retreating to the wilderness, as we discussed earlier, and he did just that. And you know what is awesome? Is that he was winning. He was winning. He soon became a sought-out spiritual guide and then published his wilderness battle into a book, and it's called, I love this, Talking Back, a monastic handbook for combating demons. And the most striking thing from this book is that he claimed the fight against the devil or the demonic is a fight against logismoi, or Greek for thoughts or thought patterns. Our fight as defined through experience by Evagrius is against negative thought patterns that have an evil, purpose-dark animating force behind them. Each section of his book begins with against the battle, against the thought that, against the thought that I am unlovable, against the thought that if people only knew the real me, against the thought that I've sinned past the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. What thoughts or lies are you maintaining or allowing to live in your mind today? Bring them to light, bring them to the Lord, and let's fight against them. What lies are you believing this morning? Is there a lie about yourself that you are believing? A lie about somebody else? A lie about the nature and character of God? Are you questioning the love of Christ for you here this morning? 
These are all questions that I've asked myself here recently. And to quote Spurgeon once more as we come to a close, now if our Lord and Master selected this true Jerusalem blade of the word of God, let us not hesitate for a moment, but grasp and hold fast this one true weapon of the saints in all times. Cast away the wooden sword of carnal reasoning. Trust not in human eloquence, but arm yourselves with the solemn declaration of God who cannot lie. And you need not fear Satan and all his hosts. Jesus selected the best weapon. What was best for him is best for us. So may we fight. May we continue on through our lives aware of the enemies we face each and every day. And would we remember that in Jesus we have the perfect example of how to combat and defeat the world, the flesh, and the devil. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, still one who has been tempted in every way, yet as we are, yet without sin. And if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated him first. And I, Jesus, have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Looking for peace, look no further than in Christ alone. Looking for encouragement, look to Christ. You're looking for life, look to Christ. Looking for victory, let us look to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the victory that we have in Jesus. That as we continue on in our life, knowing that we fight against enemies who seek to sabotage our peace, steal, kill, and destroy, accuse and lie to us, that we know we have victory sealed by the precious blood of Jesus. And I pray that you would give us all strength as we go about this year. Would we seek the truth, the only truth, as your son Jesus. Would our lives be marked by ones of silence and solitude, confession, and truth in your word. Spirit, would you give us strength as we go about our days and fight these enemies. Thank you for all that you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.